and Merry Christmas to you all. We would always say Merry Christmas on Christmas Eve. Kind of get two days out of Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas, so I give that to you. <laughs> so it be Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. I do invite all of you to come out tomorrow. I'm, I'm looking forward to that message, perhaps even a little more than this. Um, it was just a really cool thing. So I guess whenever the Lord teaches you something and opens your eyes to something, it, it is exciting. And um, So I am excited about this message. I'm also excited about tomorrow. So it's a great time to fellowship together and praise our Lord. So when you think of power, what comes to mind? Very broad Electricity, okay, power. I think like forces of nature, like something that's immense, powerful, like a a tornado, Um, lightning, thunder, fire. Power, you could talk about military might, the ability to control. Um, Superheroes like Superman or Wonder Woman, they have superpowers that enable them to do things that ordinary people cannot There's lots of examples of power, but for our use, power can be defined as the ability to do something, a force. It's the ability to do. It can be useful. Power can be formidable. But even when it's harnessed, men cannot have enough of it. We always want to have some in reserve, right? You don't want to be without power. Being powerless or without power is not what we want. We want to have the ability to do something. Um, And power can be active or passive. It's one thing to have the ability to throw a strong punch, but it's another kind of power to, when you have the ability, to not use it when you've been punched first, right? So power of self-control. And God has those that kind of power in abundance, the kind of power the world does not recognize or understand, that you could have such ability, but choose to restrict your ability at will. The power of God's love, that's remarkable. His grace, his goodness, his meekness, his self-control. Like if we had the sort of power that God has, I don't think we would employ it the way he does because he is righteous and gracious and good. He's shown power uh, through, sure, the earth quaking and his thunderbolts coming down and lightning scorching the earth, um, just ripping the rocks apart, right? But also his power is in that still small voice, in his generosity, in his humility to come to earth as a child, that God would do that and come to us so that we could be saved. Jesus had all the power in heaven or on earth. He had it all. He says, all authority has been given to me, but he wasn't proud. He didn't manipulate. He didn't force. He he could have chosen to summon legions of angels to his aid, but instead took the painful path of the cross, suffering and humiliation. That is power, the power of God. Paul said that the preaching of the cross to those who believe, it reveals Jesus to be the power of God and the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians one twenty four. So praise our powerful and awesome God the one who has come to us, the one who has opened our eyes so we can see. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are an awesome God, that 
When your presence filled the temple, the priests could not remain in it any longer because your glory was there. And you have said that no man can look upon your face and live, that you are a consuming fire that, that uh, no man can stand before. And yet you have chosen to come to us and you have used your power to save us and to deliver us from sin and death. And we rejoice, Lord, to be numbered among your children. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit afresh this morning, that you'd give us understanding of your word, and that we'd be able to lay to heart and apply everything that you say. Lord, we do love you. We thank you that you are such an awesome God, that you have sent Jesus the greatest gift of all. And we rejoice in you. We praise you. And we ask that you open our eyes to see in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage brings us to uh, Peter, John, and the lame man that was miraculously healed. They had been brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers who were greatly disturbed that, number one, they were teaching the people in Jesus' name and preaching the resurrection from the dead. So the, the rulers took exception to this, and but they couldn't really do anything to them because they realized that people glorify God for what has been done. And it was a notable miracle. It was obvious that, that there had, well, this man that they had walked past for almost 40 years, he was over 40 years old, and it said he had been laid there daily at the gate. So they would have seen him every day. Here he is walking, and there's nothing they can say about it. And it says in Acts 4.23 that the people, it reads, and being let go, they went to their companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So it begs the question, what exactly did they say to them? They were very concerned about news of the miracle and the preaching of Jesus to spread. And so in verse 17, they said, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. They said, you're not even allowed to speak the name of Jesus. And, and then it goes on in verse 21. It says, they further threatened them. So they may have put out some consequences. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. You should not speak. You should not teach in this name. Not even saying the name of Jesus. But this feeble attempt at censorship, it did not stop them. Uh, Jesus had exhorted his disciples previously in Luke 12, 4 and 5. He said, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom they should fear. You should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So it's like the worst that could happen to them was the death of their body. Of course, they could separate them from their family. They could torture them. But Jesus said, a servant is not above his master. And so don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of the one who, when he has killed, can throw you into hell. He's the one to fear. So they ought to listen to man, to God rather than men. They ought to fear God rather than what man can do because they were safe in the Father and the Son, filled with the Holy Spirit. So starting in verse 24, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The church had been birthed in prayer, and upon hearing these threats from the chief priests, they went to the Lord in prayer again as one. They didn't all audibly pray at one time. It says they raised their voice. In the Greek, it's singular. So there was one speaking and everyone in agreement. Even as they were praying in one accord in that room on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit filled them. And I like how they approach God as the creator of everything. Because as creator of everything, he has dominion over it all. He has authority over everything that happens under his rule. Now, an earthly king can't say that. A king doesn't know if there's people plotting in the back room to take him down or if the military is preparing a coup or something. But see, God is aware of everything. And the only, only the things that he allows or permits can happen. He is able to foil the greatest schemes of the devil and redeem them, like Jesus, where he, he plotted against Jesus, right? He filled Satan, Satan filled Judas to betray him. And yet, through that betrayal that God allowed, through that, he provided redemption for all mankind. So you go, wow, the wisdom of God is past finding out. The word Lord here, where they say Lord, it's, it's not a common use. The common use is kurios, which is um, supreme God, like ruler of all. This is a word that carries the idea of a ruler or master. The Greek word is the root of despot which is someone who rules with, with authority, like the master of a slave or a, a dictator even, someone who's in total control. And they came before God affirming, God, you're in control of everything. You are the Lord. You are our master, but you also have the whole heavens, the earth, the sea, everything at your disposal and command. When we come to God in prayer, do we come to him as our Lord. At, not just our Lord, but the Lord of everything. And this is a challenge because for us, Lord can just be a term, like Mr. But we don't really think about that He is the Lord. He's not just Mr. or great. He is over everything. He has everything under His control. We need to consider the implications when we say, Lord. What does it mean that he is the Lord of everything, the Almighty? These words just roll off our tongue, but they have implications, don't they? He's the Lord, and so we should honor him as such. Today I was reading, it was a really cool passage in 2 Kings chapter 3, where Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom, uh, they decided to go up to battle against the king of Moab. And... Uh, when they said, hey, uh, they were having problems, they decided it was the king of Israel who was an idolatrous king, Jehoram, and he called the king of Judah. And he said, hey, Moab, that guy's been supposed, he's supposed to be giving me sheep. He's rebelled. Let's go take him down. Show him a lesson. And the king of Judah's like, all right, let's go. My people are as your people. My horses is yours. And they travel and travel, but they hadn't pr brought any water. And so their, their animals were close to death. And the king of Israel is like, oh, see, God has done this, that we would all be destroyed together. And Jehoshaphat's like, well, hey, is there a prophet of God that we can talk to? Oh, yeah, Elisha. He's the one that washed the hands of Elijah. So they bring him out, and Jehoram 
is speaking to him, and Elisha says something amazing. He's like, hey, you're calling on me. Call upon your, your parents' gods, the god of Ahab and the god of Jezebel. You're nothing to me. And he says, and I'll look it up just because I don't want to butcher it. But it's really cool that God regards his people. And for the sake of Jehoshaphat, he did a wonderful thing in delivering them. So in 2 Kings 3.14, it says, And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. So he's like, because Jehoshaphat is here and I regard him, I'll listen to what you have to say. Otherwise, I wouldn't see you. I wouldn't hear you. You would be blocked. Uh, but because I regard him. And I'm thinking, wow, that God would regard him. And that God would hear us. How glorious is this? And he says, because you've said, you know, I brought you out here to destroy you. I'm not only going to feed, I'm going to provide water for your flocks but I'll also deliver the Moabites in your hand. Grace, right? Great grace, great power is in our God. In prayer, our primary role is not to inform God of what's happening. Like as if he doesn't know, because he's Lord of everything. Like we have, we're his little informants that tell him what is going on so that he's well appraised of the situation and the steps he should take to fix it or to rectify it. Like, he is the Lord. He knows. It's a shock, and it's overwhelming to us, but it's not overwhelming to God, because he has seen it. There's another story, how God gives insight to his people. The old prophet Ahijah in the days of Jeroboam. See, the God who created eyes, can't he see? The God who's created a mind to think, doesn't he know? Of course. The God who created the mouth, can't he speak? These are the things that God does, and far better than us, because he has all knowledge and power. Well, King Jeroboam, he had an ill son, and so he he was also an idolatrous king, and he told his wife to dress in disguise and go to um, this prophet Ahijah. Now, Ahijah was blind. He was an old man, and it says his eyes were set by reason of age, so he could not see. It says in 1 Kings 14, 5 and 6, Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam, coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was, when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Here's a blind man that God's given him insight that no man could see. And he was sent with news as he sat in his own house. It's like, wow. God like knew what was happening. And he informed his man, Ahijah, so that he could respond. Consider the greatness of God to know these things and to do these things. May God regard us. May he speak to us in like manner as we seek him. So the disciples, they're praising God, but they're seeking him about these threats. And in their prayer, they quoted from Psalm 2, 1 and 2, which reads, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Now, do you see the difference between Psalm 2 and our text? Their prayer. It's a subtle difference. What do they say? They say they gathered against his anointed Christ. They say Jesus is the Holy One. That's the one that it was speaking about back in there. His anointed, that's Jesus Christ. So they put Jesus right in the scripture where he belongs. Revelation 13.8 said it was determined from the foundations of the earth that God would come to earth and die as a sacrifice for sinners. That's phenomenal. That God knew, given the freedom to choose, man would choose to rebel against him. And so he had a plan of salvation from the foundations of the earth. Now, God did not force Adam to sin, nor did he force the rulers to reject Jesus, the Romans to uh, crucify him, but he knew that it would happen. And it happened as he had seen, as he knew. Back to Acts chapter 4. 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. God knew how the believers had been threatened. He heard those threats. He knew what they had said. And notice that these people did not pray against those who threatened them. They did not pray against the rulers or priests. They asked for boldness to speak God's word. They prayed for God to stretch out his hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of Jesus. Your holy servant, Jesus. I like that when they're threatened, they don't go, well, we need to see, seek God to see what we should do about this. Should we speak or shouldn't we speak in Jesus' name? That was already determined. They knew they were to speak in Jesus' name, right? They weren't supposed to say, well, now that we've been threatened and there's a bit of risk if we should do this, is it really what God wants us to do? That was settled. But they prayed for boldness to do the exact thing that God wanted them to do, and that man did not want them to do. To keep doing that very same thing that got them in trouble in the beginning, they said, Lord, we want you to do this. Right? They had healed the lame man who was lame from birth. They had preached in Jesus' name. And so when threatened, what did they pray for? Boldness to speak God's word, that healings would be done, and that signs and wonders would be done in Jesus' name. Because... The, the rulers hoped that by threatening them, they would make them afraid and silent. They actually emboldened them to pray that they would do better those exact things. That they would speak with boldness. And it says, the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and consequently spoke the word with boldness. Wouldn't it be awesome to pray and have a bit of an, an earthquake. Not not a destructive kind that makes the, the ceiling fall down on top of you, but just something that goes like right on, like God says, amen, and he shakes the place. You're like, wow, that was God. Um, that'd be cool. But how much greater to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I felt many earthquakes. I don't know that God was 
it was in response to a prayer that I had prayed. Um, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be have the boldness of the Lord to go out and share his truth. And, and those things are connected. If we will have God do miracles in Jesus' name, we have to be bold to speak his word. We need, there needs to be a clear connection between the power that God's given us and the truth of his scripture. Beware of wonders apart from the word of God. Because there is great uh, power in his word to do wonders. I want to ask you guys, have you ever felt threatened because of your faith in Christ? Like physically threatened. Now it's likely you've, you've felt threatened more than actually threatened verbally for most of us. But even when we are physically threatened and when the threat is real and there's intent to carry it out, we can be bold because we fear God. If we fear God, then we don't need to be fearing men. If we truly believe that God is all-powerful and he's good towards those who trust and obey him, we don't have to fear the threats of men. And we can pray for additional boldness to do what God has asked us to. Those threats can be empty, but they can also be genuine. There can be uh, great power behind them. But in the face of those terrors, in Romans 8.35, Paul writes of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. He says, through the love of Jesus, we are more than conquerors. And we're also conquerors over our own flesh, the schemes of the devil, many other things besides, through the grace of God. And it's not for us to take up the sword against the unbeliever to try to uh, you know, enforce our will upon them, but to die to self. That we would take even a path that has certain risks, professionally, personally, in obedience to God, because we trust him. In the new year, we're going to start having a, a prayer meeting on Monday nights. Um, that's kind of come out of Acts and reading about how so often they were in one accord praying and just seeking the Lord's will together. Um, and that's something that I think would be very fitting to do. So that's something we'll do, and I more details will come out um, in the next couple of weeks. But it, don't we need boldness in our day as much as ever to speak the word of the Lord? boldness to speak the truth. And I believe God will give to those who ask. And so as we seek the Lord and we just lay ourselves before him, he will move and he will answer. Acts 4:32. Oh, just one quick thing. It's really cool when you read the Bible and you say, this is what they did, let's do that too. Why not? Right? Isn't that biblical? You see the believers, they're feeling threatened and they pray. Well, let's get together and pray. Let, let's put into practice what we're reading, not just read about it. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed were his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. These people were united not only in prayer and gathering, and in the Holy Spirit, but uniting concert, united concerning physical things, their possessions. 
There was a great multitude of people who believed in the previous chapter or earlier in this chapter. It says 5,000 men and plus women and, and children. And no one lived as if their things were their own. They were generous and shared as needs arose. People were more important than things. There were many people who were from distant lands and they hadn't been established in Jerusalem. And people um, supplied those needs by the grace of God. Instead of seeing a need and saying the church should do something, people took it upon themselves to give as the Holy Spirit led them. They did what they could to contribute to the needs of others. And it's good for us to remember that everything we have is a gift from God, and we don't have to ask the question, but what about me when it comes to giving? Because remember, God has supplied everything you have. And so if we're giving in obedience to him, then he will also continue to supply what we need in the future. We have received so much through Christ. You think about life and love. We have clothing and homes and food and many other things besides eternal life. Generosity marks our God, and generosity ought to mark his followers, that we can be generous. It's good when, we're our, when our possessions do not have a hold on our affections or our hearts, and we can say, what's mine is yours, without demanding that what yours, what's yours you share with me, right? That we seek to contribute and to give. It says, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Bold preaching, miraculous healing, generosity. These were ways that the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus. There had been this change in them where people who perhaps were quite worldly, they became spiritually minded. They were caring about others and how they were doing. It was great contrast. The contrast in these people was as profound as Jesus dying on the cross and his glorified, resurrected state. These people had been dead in sins, and now they had been raised to new life in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. They were saying things that they wouldn't have dared say before, and they were doing things that they hadn't even thought of before because the Holy Spirit had empowered them. There's a connection there, verse 33. It concludes with, and great grace was upon them all. There's a connection between the grace of God and the power of God. We don't deserve to have the presence of God upon us or working through us, but where there's great power of God, great grace is also present. When they gave to others, it was never about equal distribution or to be fair. I think that's a fundamental problem um, when we try to be fair because God is much more than fair. He's gracious. Gracious goes well beyond fairness, right? Where fairness, it, it begins with man's judgment of what's right and how things can be equitable or equal and then to decide how we're going to do that and how much is, is appropriate. It, it has nothing to do with, with God leading us to be bold and generous as he leads. We cannot know and we cannot meet the true spiritual needs of others or even their physical needs um, just like we don't possess in our natural self the, the power to be a witness for Christ in this world. If we're going to meet the true needs of people, then we need the power of God upon us. I was reading uh, in a Daily Bread devotional years ago 
about someone watching a butterfly emerge from a chrysalis. The butterfly was struggling. It was kind of taking a long time. And so this compassionate uh, observer decided to cut a small slit in the chrysalis to, to aid the butterfly's entrance into the world. And it proved to be a fatal error because the struggle of the squeezing itself through that small opening is what enables its wings to fly. This person was compassionate towards the insect, but in exercising what they thought to be the right thing or what the butterfly needed at that time, it never really became the butterfly God intended it to be. Now, the point of the story in this devotional is to say that at times struggle is necessary for us to grow to maturity. It seems to be the case for the church. I mean, the church is birthed, right? And suddenly there's opposition, there's threats, there's trouble. And that drove people to prayer and to seeking the Lord. And so the warning I take to heart from that is that if I'm led by human pity or my own judgment, I have great potential for error. To do what I think is best is not the same as trusting God and doing what he says is best. In trying my best to help, I can actually hinder. Now, I did do a fact check on this devotional because I knew it was just a story, and it could be one of those stories that you've heard about so uh, that aren't necessarily true. It was a cool story, but false. Well, I, I did read that there are times where the butterfly can die in the chrysalis because it can't get out, and that there are times where you can help it. But there was a big warning at the bottom, which read this, bold print. So it says, you can help it, but warning, in most instances, helping the butterfly out of the chrysalis will prevent it from ever flying. The butterfly needs the struggle to strengthen its wings. So there was some truth to that story. Struggles. Who here likes to struggle? I don't like to struggle. I like things to be easy, right? I want things to come simply. I don't want it to be hard. I want it to be easy. Now, a man who's experienced a lot of struggles in his life is Brother Yun in China. There's a book I've read. I really recommend it. It's called The Heavenly Man. And it's really a testimony of God's great power and great grace. And the amount of suffering that that man endured for Christ's name is, is a, it's incredible. It's hard to imagine imprisoned, humiliated, tortured, separated from family. And there was one thing he wrote that I, I've never forgotten. You know, when you read a book and there's something that just kind of hits you and stays with you, this was the passage. He wrote, Once I spoke in the West and a Christian told me, I've been praying for years that the communist government in China will collapse so Christians can live in freedom. This is not what we pray. We never pray against our government or call curses down on them. Instead, we have learned that God is in control of both our own lives and the government we live under. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. The government will be on his shoulders. God has used China's government for his own purposes, molding and shaping his children as he sees fit. Instead of focusing our prayers against any political system, we pray that regardless of what happens to us, we will be pleasing to God. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and power. This is true freedom. And that just it dovetails perfectly with the prayer of the believers in Acts chapter 4. They're under threat. 
they're, being, they're facing a trial. They're being persecuted. But instead of praying against the government, instead of bring, you know, bring it all down, they said, Lord, make us bold to speak. Help us to be all you want us to be. We don't want that struggle in our flesh, but that struggle is often necessary for us to become and to do the things God has asked of us. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It writes of people giving their possessions and selling their properties and their homes and their lands, but yet there was no one in the church who lacked. They didn't lack anything because God supplied their needs. A verse that I love is in Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. It says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. When we see lack in our lives and we try to fill that gap with things or we try to fill it ourselves without seeking God as our sufficiency, we will continue to lack. But when we learn to notice our lack and to seek God, we'll find that he will supply that need in a, in a miraculous way, in a way perhaps that we didn't expect. Just like where, where he says, uh, no one who's left family or houses or brothers or sisters or mothers for the sake of the Gospels won't receive all that and more in this life and the life to come. And you say, well, how is that going to be? I only have one mother. I only have a brother and a sister. I only have this one house. And, and man, I, I, I don't own a house anymore as far as me personally, but you can say, well, but God has fulfilled that. He's given us much more than we ever thought we would have because he's given us you. You know, he's given us everything. There's nothing that we lack. So when I put myself in that scripture and I take it personally, I say, no, God has fulfilled every word and beyond my wildest expectation. There is no want to those who fear him. What did David write in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Like I have everything I need now. I'll, I have everything I need in the future because I have a good shepherd. And that's how it is with us in Christ. We have everything we need in him. Now you may not see the dollars stacking up or the market looking great. It may be trending down. But we can trust that in him we have everything. And if we, if we lose a house, if we, we haven't lost anything, if we have him, because he'll supply our needs. Easy to say, but it's a struggle that's sometimes necessary for us to mature. This passage about giving to those who had need, it's relevant because most of us have things, right? We do have possessions. We do have uh, properties. We do think not only of our financial future, but even the future of our children. And for some, the ch their children's children. 
And this is biblical. It, it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 12.14 that it's fitting for parents to lay up for their children. In Proverbs 13.22, it says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Right? So that's it's not a... It's a good thing to want to do, to think about the future. But these believers, they were willing to lay up for the good of the new children in God. People who had been born again, they were caring about those children too, God's children. Not just their own children, but the children of God who had come to Christ and that they could bless and benefit in some way to meet a need in their life. Every part of the body of Christ. Every person that God has brought together, we're all called to contribute, to communicate for the good of the body, for the glory of God. It's more blessed to give than to receive, yet there's things that we need to receive from God before we can give, right? We need to receive his life, his love, and his spirit. We're introduced to a believer named Joseph. From now on, we will read of him as Barnabas. They kind of say his name's Joseph, but they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he's one of many that sold his property. He brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. And uh, that's not an easy thing to do. It's one thing to give money, but to release the use of that money to someone else entirely, that's a little different, right? I mean, when we contribute to a mission organization, we'd kind of like to know the way that it's being used just to, so we can do due diligence and be good stewards that we're giving it to a, a worthy cause. We're only able to give cheerfully without strings attached or resentment about how it was used when we trust God, that we acknowledge all that we have is from him, that we're giving in obedience to him, and that whatever he wants to do with it, it's fine. He is He's worthy. And we don't need to worry about lacking because he is going to supply our needs. What I've found is that when we give in obedience to the leading of the Spirit, we are the ones who are enriched. We, we do not lose when we give, according to God's leading. I personally have been the benefactor of the generosity of God's people, many family and friends who have contributed money and prayers and encouragement and, and many things over the years. And it's overwhelming to consider how God has been generous through you and how I have been uh, blessed by that. Could you please turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we consider motives and giving? Next week we'll be introduced to a couple who also laid money at the apostles' feet, but their motive in giving was not pure like Barnabas's was. It doesn't say exactly what or what their motives were or why they would lie to the Holy Spirit. But may we have hearts that are walking worthy and giving according to God's word. So in Matthew chapter yeah, 6, is it chapter 6 or chapter 4? I have a discrepancy in my notes. It's kind of weird. Yes, it's chapter 6. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. 
Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. It's good for us to be content to be anonymous when we give, not desiring any recognition or, or public uh, praise because of what we've done, that we would give something and be a little, you know, I would say huffy, a bit like, well, you know, I did that thing and, and no one even noticed. And so we feel kind of bad that we did something good because we're not getting any credit. Like, what was the point? What was the point of doing it if nobody knows? So we need to know that when we do something, our motive is not to get recognition from men and not really even to get recognition from God, but know that he will recognize it and he will reward in his way and in due time. Now, in the passage here, the New King James, it puts it as charitable deeds. The word in the Greek is translated to alms almost 100% of the time. I think once alms deeds in the King James. So, charitable deed, but in giving money to people. That's pretty much the meaning of it. But the principle holds true that whether it's giving money or any charitable deed, something you do, it's not to get credit for yourself, to draw attention or praise for yourself. He says, if you do it to be seen by men, now notice, if you are seen by men, it does not cancel your heavenly reward. I remember uh, someone doing something good, and and uh, as a kid, I found out about it, and they were a bit annoyed because they thought that somehow their heavenly reward had been stolen somehow, right? Like, oh, someone found out. Oh, now it was all useless. But it, it was their attitude in giving. They did it, whether you didn't do it to be seen, but even if it is seen, it's unto the Lord, and he will reward in his time. If we do it to be seen by men, we have no reward in heaven. That feeling where your pride is stroked, that's it. That's all you get. If you did it to be seen by men and you were seen, man, you got what you wanted, that's it. There's nothing else for you. But if we do it as unto the Lord, he will reward you. And he says, openly openly in earth, openly in heaven. So instead of drawing attention to the good we've done, we do it secretly knowing that the Lord knows all. We don't even have to say, Lord, I hope you saw that. I hope you realize the sacrifice that I've made. Well, if that's our heart, i got to change. I want to have that heart that's like, Lord, this is yours. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. I really see our church fellowship as a testimony of God's great power and his grace. He's united us from nations all under heaven, different backgrounds. He's delivered us from sins and lusts and uh, addictions and pride, and, and he's washed us in the blood of Jesus. This very building that we have, it's been provided by his grace. It's a gift that we could not earn or afford, and he's given it to us. And we've been able to contribute to the lives of people and to ministries, and it's awesome when I can just be on the sidelines and be involved shoulder to shoulder with you, and I see people's lives being ministered to, and people being generous to give of their time and their money and their resources to bless and to serve one another. We're not perfect to be sure, but God has gifted us 
His presence dwells among us according to his word. And there's people who are gifted to teach and administrations and helps and tongues, interpretation, and, and on and on it goes. Beyond, beyond uh, comprehension, God has done. And I'm grateful for what all God has done. Yet I am not content to just remain in one place. I believe that God would have us press on in maturity and growth. And many of us have really tackled our sanctification in a sense. We're like, you know, I want to draw closer to God. I want to be used by God. I want to be more fruitful in the service of God. Like like a butterfly squeezing out of the chrysalis, it's hard work. And we must go through it if we will grow, if we will mature and be all who God desires us to be. One thing I love is that our individual spiritual well-being is not dependent on anyone else. I cannot say that you guys are holding me back. And you cannot rightly say that, you know, if only our pastor was a bit more spiritual, we'd be so much better. No. We can all draw closer to God. We can all grow in grace and have his power upon us when we seek him and we submit ourselves wholly to him. The power we see to, we need to be Christ's witnesses is ours when we seek him and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Great grace will be upon us all. I love that our, our spiritual growth is not dependent on one another, but we can greatly aid and encourage and exhort one another as we see the day approaching. We say that the Lord is, he who was, is, and is to come. He is to come. He is coming. He is here, and he will physically come someday. And that picture of Barnabas selling his stuff, laying at the apostles' feet, may it be like us saying, Lord, I take my life, I take my possessions, I take my dreams and aspirations, and I lay myself at your feet. You can do whatever you want with me, however you want. I'm willing to endure anything because I can't endure it on my own at all. But if you put me through the fire, you will bring me forth as gold. You will refine me. You will help me. And so I entrust my life and my future to you completely. No strings attached. No bitterness. No resentment. Say, Lord, I am yours and praise you. You are mine. It's one thing to lay money someone's feet. It's another thing to lay down your life, right? And we see that in our Savior, that he laid down his life for us. May we lay down ours for him. Why don't we turn finally as we close to Romans 12 verse 1. We are beseeched here, strongly exhorted. May we take this to heart. Romans 12, starting in verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So may this be true of us, that we would, by the mercies of God, it's by his mercies we are not consumed, it's by his mercy we're able to approach him in his throne room of grace, that we could present ourselves living sacrifices. And a living sacrifice must be dying to self daily. 
not conformed to this world, but transformed. And it's God who does that. What a merciful, gracious God we serve. That God would regard us. That he would look upon us and he would answer our prayer and say, because, because you're praying, I see you and I hear you. And I'm going to even help those unbelievers around you. And I'm going to do wondrous things because I am powerful and gracious. And such is our God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are an awesome God. You are great in power. You are great in grace. And may your spirit fill us. May we be filled with rejoicing and praise for your goodness and grace to us all. And Lord, may we be those who lay ourselves down at your feet without demands, without expectation, just knowing that you are going to do awesome things because you only do awesome things. So we rejoice in you, Lord. We thank you again for Christmas, for remembering uh, Christ being sent as the greatest gift that we can receive and be born again, that we can have a new life and be transformed and be useful in your hands. And I pray, Lord, that in this season and always, we would uh, lay ourselves down before you. We would stir each other up to love and good works, that we'd be encouraged and strengthened in the inner man, and that you would have your way in each one. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. I thank you for the strength that we have through you, for the promises, for the purpose that we've Uh, discovered through Jesus. And I pray that you would increase our faith, that we would be your obedient sons and daughters, those in whom you're well pleased. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.